Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you all for joining us in this episode of Compounding Conundrums, where we sit down with sterile compounding experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. This is the first of a three-part series that is being produced by members of the ASHP section of Inpatient Care Practitioners Advisory Group on Compounding Practice. My name is Jim Lund. I'm the immediate past chair of the section advisory group on compounding practice, and I'm currently a senior director in the hospital and health system division of VSANT, a pharmacy consulting firm. I'm fortunate to be joined by three incredibly smart and talented compounding leaders and colleagues that are also members of the section advisory group. Joining me today is Kevin Hansen, who is the director of compounding services and data analytics at Cohen Health in Greensboro, North Carolina. Kevin is also a past chair of the section advisory group and helped establish the SAG a few years ago. Additionally, we have Terry Larilla, who is the home care pharmacy manager at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and Kaylee Thompson, who is the operations manager at Arkansas Children's Northwest in Springdale, Arkansas. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. So there's been a lot of activity in the compounding world recently. Um, We've seen recently updated FDA guidance documents, and late last year, the publication of the longly anticipated um, revised USP Chapter 797. So there's a wide array of topics we can discuss. However, in this first episode of our podcast series, we thought it would be beneficial to start with the very basics and start by diving into the definition of what exactly is compounding and why does this matter? It may seem like a silly question to start with, but I think we would all agree it's important to understand this before someone dives into the details of various regulations and standards. So Kevin, I'll start with you. I've seen you and and heard you review this concept many times in the past and have always enjoyed your review. So could you outline for us some of the definitions around compounding and provide some perspective on how this applies to our daily practice? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much, Jim, for the kind introduction. And um, and what great way to start when we think about compounding conundrums of what even is considered compounding and what, what is it not? Uh, considered. And really, when we kind of look at the evolution, you know, we'll, we'll start with the 2008 version of USB 797 or the currently enforceable version of there's not necessarily a clear definition. You have to really read uh, through each of the risk categories, low risk, medium risk, and high risk, and think about how many products we have, what are we doing. Uh, of course, the chapter provides, you know, uh, different products that are given to our patients that need to be sterile. But when is it considered compounding and when is when is it not? Is reconstituting, diluting, pooling, where does that fit into that, into that context? And while this is a conundrum not only for compounders, it may be for regulatory agencies, accreditation bodies as well, as they think about enforcing these standards of, you know, if they have a different interpretation of what's compounding than a compounder, you can see that that is going to be uh, a very challenging uh, scenario. So as we think through now the evolution, uh, you know, Jim mentioned we have this 2023 upcoming enforceable version of USP 797. Some of this has been changed um, and in many ways has been made more clear. The chapter now comes out within the, the introduction section and, and defines it clearly. It says sterile compounding is defined as combining, admixing, diluting, pooling, reconstituting, repackaging, or otherwise altering a drug product or bulk substance to create a sterile preparation, right? So there should be really no confusion, right, at all of what is considered compounding and what is not. Well, uh, there's also some other elements that we want to talk about from a conundrum um, aspect is it depends on 
what hat you're wearing and, and the context of the conversation. So for example, the, uh, the FDA has a very different definition of what is considered compounding. Uh, and, and that is because the basis of their decisions on this is about the approval pathway, right? We know that drugs that go through the FDA approval process um, are undergone efficacy and, and safety. They have approval labeling. They have to meet certain requirements uh, for that labeling. And so uh, really in FDA's eyes is if you're following what is you know prescribed in this approved labeling, that is not considered compounding in their eyes because again, it's been through that, that FDA uh, approval pathway, right? Whereas uh, drugs that are compounded have not gone through that approval pathway, right? So when we're reading these guidance documents from the FDA and, and reading things, we have to put the right hat on and view, you know, what is that, that compounding definition um, in, in this lens? Um, so certainly the revised chapter makes that um, a lot more clear and is something that all of our hospitals and health systems and organizations, as we revise our SOPs and our policies and prepare uh, for these revisions, that that definition really is, is central to, to how we approach that. Great. Thank you, Kevin, for that review. Um, again, something that, like we said earlier, it seems relatively basic, but there's a bit of complexity here. So I think so frequently we think of any activity associated with preparing an IV product as simply being compounded. But from a regulatory perspective, that's not always true. Um, as you've outlined so well for us, there's differences between different regulatory bodies here. Um, one follow-up question for you, Kevin. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, around the, the idea of if you're following the package insert and whether the FDA maybe sees that or compounding is not. A, a bit of a devil's advocate question here. If if someone is simply following the package insert and perhaps not meeting the definition of compounding per the FDA, could could one argue that USP 797 does not apply here? Yeah, thanks for the follow-up question. And um, it's really an important aspect of this new chapter is it talks about following per, you know, the approved labeling. Um, um, but we know that all the approved labelings are not created equal, right? And so we really have to look at the context of what's in that labeling. Um, you know, does it have information on reconstitution and uh, the stability, the storage conditions, the environment? We know that some approved labeling does while, while others uh, do not. And so, uh, from a compounder's aspect, is is evaluating that to determine, you know, um, where those uh, th- those do apply or not. Are we making it for a single patient? Are we making it a batch? Um, for for an example, uh, so I think to to maybe call out two specific examples, um, you know, let's pick a drug, daptomycin, right? It's a FDA approved drug. That package insert outlines, you know, how to uh, dilute this lyophilized powder. Um, you know, what the resultant concentration is. Um, how to further dilute that uh, to administer, you know, through an IV piggyback. Um, uh, it talks about the environment. There's there's lots of information in there. So if you're following that uh, that package insert and in, in the way in the directions that's there, it is not considered compounding uh, per now USP and um, the FDA. Now, if you were to put a tweak on that and say, well, maybe you want to dilute it differently than what's in the package insert. Uh, maybe for a patient-specific reason, that's there. If you're deviating from that package insert um, and not following the instructions, then it would be considered compounding. Again, because you have you're not following that that approved safety and efficacy pathway that was outlined in that package insert. One other important thing to think about in this question too is what about when we're mixing 
multiple approved drugs together. So a really common example is buffered lidocaine. So we have a, a conventionally manufactured approved lidocaine for injection vial and uh, the same of an approved injection of sodium bicarbonate. And it's not uncommon that compounders or practitioners will add a little bit of sodium bicarbonate to the lidocaine vial um, to, to buffer it uh, for line starts and for other purposes there. Well, when we think about how the FDA would view this, right, while both of those products are FDA approved and have their individual package inserts, that combined preparation, that buffered lidocaine, does not exist on the market. There is, there is not a conventionally manufactured <laughs> buffered lidocaine solution that exists. And so the FDA would view that as compounding, even though you're using these sterile, uh, you know, conventionally manufactured ingredients because it has never been evaluated for the safety and efficacy. So hopefully through some of those examples can help to provide a little bit of guidance on our thought process of, you know, evaluating what is compounding, what is not, even if you, you have that approved labeling. Great. Thank you, Kevin. That's a very important distinction. Thank you for your review and that perspective there. I guess one one additional question I have for you, if, if you could, um, there's there's some differences here with repackaging and the concept of repackaging and how does that relate, if you will, to compounding. Could you cover briefly for us the, the concept of repackaging? How does that relate to compounding and, and how does it differ between USP Chapter 795 and 797? Yeah, thank you for the follow-up. Um, so within this definition now that we've been focused on for 797, right, we also need to look at the definition for 795 for non-sterile compounding. So we can see that these definitions, almost word for word, are the exact same. There are some differences, however. When we when we actually think about the practices of repackaging um, a, a given drug, product, or preparation, in the context of 797 or sterile compounding, that is considered compounding and the chapter would apply. When we think about non-sterile compounding or the, the chapter of 795, repackaging is, is not within that definition. And so, you know, you ask the question, well, well, why might this be? Well, in that introduction and scope of each of the chapters, you know, it talks about the purposes of the chapter. Um, so, of course, we're concerned with, you know, the stability um, of a preparation, whether it's sterile or it's non-sterile. And so it talks about, you know, variability from the intended strength of the correct ingredients. But what's different between the two chapters is obviously with sterile compounding, we're concerned about the sterility of the finished preparation. Whereas in 795, um, you know, there's no requirements to have those be sterile um, and they're given via routes of administration that does not require them to be sterile. And so um, there's other guidances that are out there to help with repackaging of non-sterile, um, you know, liquids or repackaging liquids. Um, and so that is, for example, USP 1178 on good repackaging practices would be a, a great place to start when you're when you're looking into that. So that is one important differentiation, and the definition of compounding for each of these is is that within repackaging. Interesting. Thank you so much, Kevin. This this is really helpful, and, and I hope our audience agrees that kind of understanding and breaking down these definitions are, are critical to understanding the regulations and how they apply. Um, one interesting distinction that Kevin pointed out there, specifically how the FDA defines compounding and how that may differ from USP in certain circumstances. Um, so clearly, understanding that difference is important when it comes to interpreting standards published by USP and how that differs from documents made available by the FDA. 
Recently, the FDA released their updated guidance document for hospitals compounding under Section 503A of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and multiple documents for facilities compounding under Section 503B of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Terry and Kaylee, I'd like to talk through how these documents provide additional guidance to compounders. Um, Terry, maybe you could start. Um, could you walk us through some important considerations in this regard as it applies to the FDA's guidance on 503A compounding? And maybe to start, where are the exemptions provided to compounded drug products under Section 503A of the FDNC Act? Thanks, Jim. Uh, drugs compounded in accordance with all of the conditions of Section 503A are exempt from three things. One would be the CGMP requirements, then labeling with adequate directions for use, as well as pre-marketing approval. Okay, great. So it's important to keep in mind all these conditions that must be met according to 503A to allow for these exemptions you just outlined. Could you expand on those conditions a little bit, Terry? Yes. The first condition, the 503A designation was set for patient-specific compounding pursuant to a prescription or in limited quantities in anticipation of a prescription. A pharmacy that only compounds pursuant to a prescription can more easily stay within those 503A guidelines. The anticipatory compounding system may be more applicable to larger healthcare system pharmacies that distribute compounds to various health system locations within their areas, such as the emergency department or operating rooms. Another condition would be that compounding is performed by a licensed pharmacist in a state licensed pharmacy or federal facility or by a licensed physician. Another condition would be that it is in compliance with the USP 797, 795 chapters on pharmacy compounding, and that using bulk drug substances are manufactured in a registered facility and received and accompanied by valid certificate of analysis. Another condition is that the drugs have been removed from the market and or drugs that have been identified by the FDA as a product that demonstrates difficulties for compounding. The, there is an FDA list of drugs that can be used for 503A compounding. The FDA uh, has developed that list and has three categories for, for uh, those ingredients that can be used. And category one are those substances that are under evaluation and have sufficient supporting uh, information. One more consideration is that the condition does not compound regularly large quantities of products that are essentially uh, copies of that sterile compound. And that there is also a limitation in the interstate distribution of compounded drugs, such as the 5% rule. Another point was that the FDA had a memorandum of understanding describing when certain drugs could be compounded by a 503A and shipped out of state. But that was challenged by Wellness Pharmacy versus the FDA. So now the FDA will use the enforcement discretion regarding a 5% rule, which limits the facility to 5% out-of-state distribution from which they were compounded. And this may be more applicable 
to a pharmacy that is located near a state border. Okay, great. Thank you, Terry. I, I think in total, there's maybe like 10 total conditions that the FDA outlines, and I appreciate you outlining some of the more noteworthy ones for us there. Um, could you maybe help me understand one thing that's important, I think, for everyone to understand um, listening to this podcast? You mentioned the prescription requirement. Oftentimes, hospital pharmacies compound in advance of a prescription or advance of a medication order to meet patient needs. How, how are we able to do that as hospital pharmacies and still function as a 503A compounder? Thanks, Jim. When you talk about uh, anticipatory compounding, that compounding, you do not have that patient prescription yet, but you will be getting that prescription at a later time. Uh, because as we know that uh, the, the prescriber is going to order that and it's going to be administered. When it comes to anticipatory compounding, that uh, guidance actually describes uh, what is strictly limited and controlled to the following circumstance. One of those being that it's only administered to a patient within that hospital or health system, and that the compounded drug is used or discarded within 24 hours after being transferred out of the compounding pharmacy, and the final is that the drug is compounded in accordance with other requirements, such as not being made under insanitary conditions nor misbranded. Great. Thank you, Terry, for that overview. Um, important to understand the FDA's expectations of hospital and health system pharmacies and their compounding practices under 503A. So thank you. Um, switching gears, maybe contrasting a little bit with our 503A guidance. Kaylee, can you describe for us the exemptions provided to compounded drug products under Section 503B of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act? Sure. Thanks, Jim. Um, so drugs compounded in accordance with all of the conditions of Section 503B are subject to all the provisions of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that apply to conventionally manufactured drug products, except um, labeling with adequate directions for use and pre-market approval requirements, which are similar um, to the provisions required uh, admitted under 503A. And then additionally, the last um, exception is um, the Drug Supply Chain Security Act requirements. Those are actually not required under 503B. Okay, great. So, so some similar, some difference here. Uh, one distinction that's noteworthy, I, I heard Terry mention the exemptions for 503A, including not having to meet CGMP. Um, but Kaylee, you mentioned three exemptions for 503B, which did not include an exemption from CGMP requirements. Um, so 503Bs need to meet CGMP standards. Why is there a difference? Why would a 503B need to meet CGMP standards, but a 503A would not? I think that's a great question, and I think um, we really have to look um, kind of, you know, from the, the whole picture. The FDA really does acknowledge the fact that compounded drugs do serve an important patient need, but, you know, like Kevin mentioned earlier, those drugs, compounded drugs are not, you know, FDA-approved drugs, so therefore they've kind of missed some of the process that is required, Um and so the goal, I think, of the FDA uh, for this dis in this distinction and to ensure that 503Bs do meet good manufacturing requirements is they're really trying to make the distinction between compounding and manufacturing. I think we would all agree that batch compounding is inherently more risky for patient safety um, because of the risk 
to multiple, if not, you know, thousands of patients at a time, uh, depending on the size of the batch, um, not just to one individual patient. Um, so I think additional requirements of CGMP practices do attempt to mitigate that risk, and it's very important. I think it's also, um, you know, for 503A compounders, most of the requirements of CGMP are just not practical. I mean, just some examples, you know, um, separate independent quality control unit that their sole responsibility is to oversee various aspects of production. I think we would all love to have that kind of staffing available and oversight, but realistically in a 503A compounding facility, we, we just don't have that available to us. Um, I think there's very specific strict uh, facility design requirements that again, most 503A uh, compounding facilities are not going to have that space available. Um, and then, you know, some very specifics, the container closure, closure system testing um, that really has to be done under the proposed storage conditions and retesting each time that a manufacturer specifications of the container or the closure is changed. I think that those, you know, specific requirements under CGMP would actually be next to impossible for a 503A compounder to really abide by. And so that kind of opens up that space for the 503B compounders. Great. Uh, very interesting. Thank you, Kaylee. Um, you mentioned a, a moment ago, crossing over from compounding to manufacturing. And typically when I think of manufacturing, I guess I, I think of very large scale operations capable of producing thousands of units at a time. Um, when Terry was discussing the 503A conditions earlier, he mentioned, you know, an expectation is that 503As compound limited quantities of drugs at a time. Is there any more guidance provided from the FDA around what's considered a limited quantity? Yeah, actually. Um, so the FDA guidance on prescription requirements uh, released in 2016 does provide some, um, I guess, some guidance to facilities functioning as 503A compounders as to what would be considered, you know, quote, limited quantity. So they do provide, basically it says, no more than a 30-day supply of a compounded product to fill anticipated prescriptions. And that 30-day supply has to actually be based on valid actual prescriptions received in the 30-day period over the past year. Now, it is nice. Um, the FDA does, um, in that same document, kind of provide allowance to reevaluate um, and revise your 30-day period, um, depending on your need. So that does give some flexibility to uh, 503A facilities to really review their internal practices and, and see what's practical from their own workflow. Um, I think the FDA, you know, also realizes that a compounded drug product, you know, might be distributed to any patient or prescriber who presents a valid prescription. So that allows, again, that flexibility um, to, to have that, you know, quote, 30-day supply on hand. Great. Thank you for clarifying that, Kaylee. Very, very great information there. Um, I guess as we're wrapping up here, we're kind of running out of time. So thank you all for the excellent points and for the great discussion today. Um, I wanted to thank Kevin, Terry, Kaylee for joining us today to discuss definitions of sterile compounding and how these apply to current practice. This is a great discussion to start us off. And I think in our next podcast, we'll continue our discussion, but shift gears a little bit and start reviewing beyond use dating and the impacts of the updated USP Chapter 797 on sterile compounding and how that applies to the establishment of BUDs. I'm really looking forward to that discussion with you all and, and hope the audience joins us for that as well. 
I also want to thank our audience for joining us today. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Compounding Conundrums. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for great content. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.